if we tolerate the virtues of tolerance, Krishna says here, we become situated in immortality. We come to self-realization. We come to a kind of practice that is unshakable, a kind of conviction that is unshakable. And then disturbances that come, we understand what they are. We find the environment is friendly. We've arrived. There is no problem, only service. We should try to think like this, try to live like this. There's no problem. No problems, there's only service. All those problems are service opportunities. But we want mukti, the witch. We have a witch in our heart, the desire for mukti. We want easy life. We either want to work crooked or have an easy life. We want an easy life through working in a crooked way. Cannot get that. But we want to retire. But to do something, to serve somebody, that is not very desirable. <laughs> Bukti mukti. These two desires for material enjoyment and for liberation, these have to be taken out of the heart. Rather than try to acquire something that doesn't belong to you in the first place and attain an artificial position of comfort, based on someone else's possessions. But to try to escape from work altogether and do nothing. We should serve the person who has everything. Serve the person who knows everything. If we get some knowledge, we'll see the futility in work. That's true. But we don't see that we have some work to do, that akarma that I spoke of earlier. Krishna's work that we're culpable on either side of the spectrum. Bhukti, mukti. We have to come in the middle, bhakti, devotion. By devotion to the person who owns everything and knows everything, then you know whatever you need, you have. Whatever you need to know, then you know. So tolerance. And then now Krishna will explain something further about the nature of consciousness. He explains it and then he gives an example. He says, Nasato vidite babo nababo vidite sata ubayor api vishton tas tonayos tatvadashibi. That which is subject to change is not eternal or ultimately real. That which is real is neither temporary nor subject to change. It cannot be destroyed. This is the conclusion of the seers of truth reached after deliberating on both. Well, this is kind of high talk. So Arjuna needs some explanation. He says, after all here, Nasatubhidite Babo, Nabhubhidite Sata. He says, Tatvadarshibi. This is the vision of the seers. This is means this is what the Shruti says. This is what the scripture is saying. So because of Arjun's confusion, he seeks to explain it further in the next two verses. He says, Abhinashi tu tadvidi yena sarvamidam tatam binasham abhyasyasya nakaschitkartamahati. You should know that which pervades all to be indestructible. No one can bring about the destruction of the imperishable being. Consciousness which is all-pervading is indestructible. No one can destroy the imperishable soul. And antavanti ime deha nityasyokta sharirinaha anashino pramiyasya tasma bharata Only the bodies inhabited by the eternal, indestructible, immeasurable soul are said to be subject to destruction. Therefore, Get up and fight, O descendant of Bharat. So he's given two examples to explain in verses 17 and 18 what he mentioned in 16. 
that there are things that are unreal and that there are things that are real. The real is consciousness and unreal are those things that are here today and gone tomorrow, the material manifestations. Consciousness is real because it cannot be dismissed. All material manifestations can be dismissed because, as I say, they're here today and gone tomorrow. But the act of dismissal requires consciousness itself, so consciousness cannot be dismissed. It's enduring. It's reality. This is what he wants to say. So Arjuna's been instructed, don't grieve for people lost in the battle. Krishna's given some reasons. But the doubt may linger, as it does in Arjuna's mind, that, well, okay, I shouldn't grieve for the loss of anyone. At the same time, there's no rule that says one will be free from sin, from killing others, as long as you don't grieve for the loss. So still I may incur some sin. What about that? Ya enam vitihantaram yaschainam manyatehatam. Uboto nabijanito. I am hunting a hanyate. Krishna says both one who thinks that the soul is the slayer and one who thinks that the soul is slain are confused. The soul neither slays nor is slain. So he says the soul is not the agent of killing nor the object of killing. So you're not doing any killing. That understanding, there's no sin involved. Now he gives two verses from the Upanishads to further explain this idea, that the soul is not the agent of action nor the object. Najayate mrite vakadachin nayam bhutpa bhavita vana bhuiha ajo nitya shashvato yamparano nahanyate hanyamane sharire The soul is neither born nor dies, nor will it ever cease to be unborn, eternal, not subject to decay, primeval, is not slain when the body is slain. Vedabhinashinam nityam yainam ajam avyayam katam sapurushapartakam katayati hantikam. How can one who knows the indestructible, eternal, birthless, imperishable nature of the self cause anyone to be slain? Whom does he slay? Basamsi, Jnani, Yatabihaya, Navani, Gunati, Naroparani, Tata, Sharirani, Vihaya, Jnani, Anyani, Samyati, Navani, Dehi. Actually, this verse. 19 to 20 from Katupanishad. Now he says, Vasamsi Jnaniyatabhihaya. He's replying to Arjuna's doubt that in spite of Krishna's logic thus far, in this verse, verse 21, Krishna gives some logic to support what he said. How can anyone who knows that the soul is indestructible, eternal, birthless, and perishable in nature cause anyone to be slain? Whom does he slay? This is his logic. In spite of this, Arjuna fears that although he may not be the cause of anyone's death, he will be the cause of others changing bodies. That might be a problem. Okay, they don't die, but they change bodies, they leave, so they go somewhere else. That could be a problem. So Krishna says this verse, he says, Vasamsi Jadani He gives a nice example. He says, Just as one dons new garments after discarding old ones, similarly the self in embodied consciousness accepts new bodies after discarding those worn out, the old ones. So what Krishna is saying here is that, well, don't worry, because um, Bhishma and Drona, for example, who Arjuna is most opposed to killing, being closely related to them, they're going to get new bodies. Yeah, they're going to change bodies, but they're going to get they're going to get better bodies. They're going to give up their old bodies or they're going to get new bodies. 
The word jurnani, worn out, indicates something that has passed its usefulness. They're going to give up those bodies. And parani, the other bodies they're going to get, this word implies improvement. Even from this point of view, their situation is going to improve. Samyati here indicates an attainment, such as that which Bhishma is due, when if you want to attain something like heaven or a better situation. So this way, Krishna is arguing, continuing to argue. There's nothing to lament about. Arjuna next wonders, how is it that the soul within the body is not affected by the destruction of the body? If one is in a house, for example, and the house burns down, how is the person inside, though he's different from the house, not affected? So Krishna says, Nainam chindanti shastrani nainam dahati pabaka nachainam kledayantayapo nashoshayati maruta. The self cannot be pierced by weapons, burned by fire, moistened by water, or withered by the wind. As Krishna speaks, he gestures to Arjuna's arsenal of arrows, which include not only sharp arrows that cut, but others that harness the power of fire, water, and wind through the use of mantra. None of these weapons can harm the soul nor protect the body from its destiny of destruction. Krishna next states why these weapons cannot destroy the soul and how it is that the soul is not susceptible to destruction by them. Surely the self is indivisible, unburnable, insoluble, cannot be dried. It is eternal, all-pervading, changeless, unmoving, and primeval. So, it can't be cut. It's achedya. So the effects in the previous verse are byproducts of the soul's qualities mentioned in this verse. So he's giving some support. Why it can't be cut, why it can't be burned? Well, it's indivisible. So it can't be cut. This is its nature. It can't be burned because it's adhyaya, unburnable. <laughs> it can't be dissolved in water. It's insoluble. It can't be withered by wind or dried up because it's ashosha. And furthermore, the second half of the verse explains why the soul is not subject to the effects of the above-mentioned weapons because it's eternal, nitya, it's all-pervading, sarvagata, changeless, stanu, and unmoving, achala, and primeval. It is not subject to any of the transformations that the body is whatsoever. Something subject to action causes a result of that action, such as production, acquisition, transformation, and change of condition. Being eternal, the soul is not produced. Since it's all-pervading, it cannot be acquired. Being changed, it's not transformed. And being unmoving, it's not subject to any change of condition. And he emphasizes in all of this, Eva, surely, certainly, this is the case. There's a nice word here, Sarvagata, means that it's all-pervading. Jiva Goswami has explained in the Paramatma Sandarbha, Sarvagata is meaning dependent, Gata, on God, who is everything. Sarva. A very charming idea, he says. Everything is but God and his energies. One who is aware of this and thus depends exclusively on God in all circumstances experiences all pervasiveness through his dependence on he who is all pervasive. Avyakto yamachintoyam, avikaro yamuchate, tasmad evam viditvainam, nanu sochitam arhasi. So this is a conclusion here. It's not the end of the section entirely, but it comes to a concluding note. He says, it is said that the self is invisible, inconceivable, and unchangeable. So there's re- some repetition here for emphasis. Knowing this, you should not mourn for the body. Therefore, you should not mourn for the body. That's how he began. Don't lament. 
Atrachainam nityajatam nityam vamanyase mitam tatapitvam mahabaho nainam sochati Now he changes a little bit his angle. Having reached a concluding point here, he just is an afterthought. He says, Anyway, O oh mighty armed Arjun, even if you think that the self is continually born and continually dies, still you have no reason to lament for it. So he goes to a kind of a Buddhist angle of vision or a materialistic angle of vision about consciousness, that it's not eternal or that it's only living matter, then, if that's the case, no reason to lament, even if you go in the opposite direction. And then, jata sihi dhruvo mityor dhruvam janma mitasicha tasmad aparihariyate natvam sochitam arasi. Death is certain for all who take birth. Birth is certain for all who die. Therefore, do not lament in matters like this, which are unavoidable. Avyakta dini bhutani, vyakta madhyani bharata, avyakta nidanandiyeva, so now he speaks about the body. He's been talking about the soul, now he talks about the body. All beings are manifest in their beginning, unmanifest in their middle period, and again unmanifest at their end. Thus there's no cause for lamentation. Previous to the last two verses, Krishna argues that one should not lament for the imperishable soul. Here he argues that one should not lament for the loss of the body either, for it's always existing in terms of its elemental constituents. In other words, that which makes up the body is dispersed into the totality of material nature, but it, uh, it doesn't go anywhere. It's still around in another form. So he says, uh, don't lament for the body either. And then he, he really kind of concludes this section again now after his afterthought. I've just been going through this very quickly, and I know it's taking a long time, <laughs> but there are many important verses here in this section. I wanted to go through each verse, each one has so much significance and deep meaning and logic and insight that I wanted to give an overview of the section. So here he concludes it with some interesting interesting statement. He says, Aschadivat pashati kastidenam Aschadivat vadati tataivachanya Aschadivat chanam anyasrinoti sutvapi enam vedana chaiva kastid He says, I know the whole thing's amazing. The soul, I'm talking about the soul, he says. Some see the self as being a wonder. Others proclaim it a wonder, while still others hear of it as a wonder, yet even after hearing about it, none can fathom it. So he's admitting the topic is is vast. It's only about the soul. We have so far to go. He's just talking about the soul. He says it's unfathomable, wonderful. O descendant of Bart, this himself embodied in every being is eternal and indestructible. Therefore, you should not lament for anyone. So he began this section by saying, don't lament, and he's concluded this section by saying, don't lament. He began the Gita in this sense with this statement, and he ends it with this statement. There's nothing to worry about, he says, but we are still worried (laughs) so much in life. Where we will go next, how we will get the money to go there, what we will eat when we get there, where will we live when we get there, how will we get out of there. This is a problem. We cannot be satisfied with the moment. But as Krishna began here, we should be satisfied with the moment. Because only the scenery is changing. We are remaining the same. So I want to go back now to verse 12 and begin to explain the significance of each verse in some depth, but maybe we should stop for a moment and take any questions. Yes. I was reading in the Jag Dharma that there's Vyavaharika and Paramatmika. 
types of duties for everyone, or especially for grihastas, those who have to have interactions with the material world a lot, do ceremonies and attend family functions and things like that. And so when it comes to uh, the point of uh, some of the advice Krishna is giving, you know, not lamenting for those who have died and um, being totally detached, that sort of perspective, then uh, how does that work into the, you know, the practical life? And just as, a, as one example, there's a, sort of a uh, controversy that came up recently after um, the World Trade Center was hit and people were killed. And some devotees were saying in, in different forms that, uh, well, it's their karma, they deserved it, or so, something insensitive, like, that seemed insensitive to others. Other people were saying that that's, we shouldn't be insensitive. But in the light of Krishna's advice here, don't lament for people who have died and just, you know, see them as souls. How does somebody, especially maybe a grahasta, who has to interact with society, or maybe even a preacher who has to interact with people who are aware of their presentation and are sensitive to it, how does a person balance the advice Krishna is giving here? That's a good question. The answer is that Krishna is giving theoretical insight here to Arjuna, to his disciple, about the reality of the soul. But what we'll find, just following this section, is that he realizes, as he goes into the next section, that Arjuna is not capable of applying that. He's not in a position that he's advanced enough and realized that he's assimilated that knowledge and put it into practice in such a way that he can actually act on that platform. So again, he goes to the platform of Dharma and encourages, he brings Arjuna from this theoretical reality about the soul where he's transcended the whole world and spoken of the futility of it and, and the temporal nature of it. And and he comes back then to Arjuna's reality, and on the basis of Dharma, he starts to again encourage him and answer specifically all his objections that he's raised earlier at the beginning of this chapter. He dismissed those objections in his very opening lines in the second chapter and chided Arjuna and chastised him. And he raised the argument out of the platform of the soul above Dharma to spiritual experience rather than religious life. But he realizes that Arjuna is not on the platform, so that platform, so he goes down again and addresses all the reasons from the point of view of Dharma that Arjuna has given, in this chapter anyway, in the second chapter, for not fighting, and tells him that he should go ahead and do so, answers those based on Dharma. So the point I'm making in answer to your question is that it, it is important to speak the theoretical truth to educate the disciples. But it's also important to understand where they're at so that they can be taught how to apply themselves such that they'll call their own pro their progress naturally and realize the theoretical truths. We can't hear the theoretical truths that are above us and artificially with an intellectual sleight of hand, so to speak, think that we've, we've understood them, we've, we've embraced that reality, and therefore we're in a very high position where in the face of for example, a great catastrophe, loss of a friend or, you know, many people, for example, in this incident of, uh, of terrorism, we could be in a position of having no sensitivity to that, unaware of that, aloof from that. And those people say, well, that's their karma. Yeah, we shouldn't feel bad for them. They're artificially, through kind of, like I say, an intellectual sleight of hand, thinking they've gone somewhere where they haven't. That's not their everyday life. That's not their practical reality. When someone dear to them is lost, 
they feel the things that they say, oh, I don't feel. Why should we feel? Because they haven't come to the platform of understanding that all people are part of the same same family. We all have more in common than we have different from one another. Krishna explained in 6th chapter of Bhagavad Gita, the highest yogi is one who feels the pain of others as if it were his own. So, there is possibility that we can be in a position of being aloof from it. But that's a very high position. And even in that position, when reflecting on it, a great soul will feel some pain for those people, as if it's his own. If we pass through material compassion to the spiritual heart of real compassion, then compassion for the plight of humanity is included in compassion for the soul. In other words, if I realize the plight of the soul, then I may minister to the soul's needs and I may not spend time ministering to human problems like feeding the poor or opening a hospice for dying people. I may spend all my time teaching the Bhagavad Gita, for example. But that doesn't mean I'm insensitive to the plight of those people. If I'm speaking about the plight of the soul, and in imploring people to understand the circumstances that the soul is in, what it needs to make a comprehensive solution to the problem. I may not have time to minister to, to symptoms of the problem, but it's not that I'm unsympathetic to them altogether. So, if we have attained a high spiritual position, we will feel some compassion for the plight of humanity and, and, and the symptoms. Just because you know the solution and you know the disease doesn't mean that you don't feel for people who have uh, have the symptoms. When Krishna says you shouldn't lament, what he's saying is you shouldn't be overwhelmed by lamentation to the point that you don't take up the task of pursuing spiritual life. This is getting in the way of Arjuna's pursuance. But it doesn't mean that in the course of pursuing spiritual life and developing self-realization and God-consciousness, you have be insensitive to, and call it, uh, well, tough karma these people. This heart should become soft, not hard. I gave the example, once Prabhupada was asked by one of his disciples in Calcutta, leaning over the balcony of the temple, he saw two beggars, they were um, maimed, like missing some of their limbs and, and begging with the other ones. And he said to Prabhupada, you know, Prabhupada, sometimes I feel compassion for these people. And Prabhupada said, why only sometimes? He was thinking, I guess I'm in Maya. In illusion, I'm not supposed to lament or feel sorry for because I know it's just their karma. And the soul is independent of the body, but sometimes I do feel. And Prabhupada says, "Why only sometimes?" In other words, as I say, if you pass through the shadow of compassion to the substance of compassion, then that material compassion, which is the shadow, you have that as well. So, with regard to the householder, in particular, I mean, even for the even for the sannyasi who is in the world and preaching. He should see, everyone should see, that their heart is becoming softer by spiritual practice, not that it's becoming harder by some theoretical knowledge. This is a big problem because in the West, people like to have things without having the bank balance to pay for them. The whole world has become a credit-based economy, so we don't have the money, but we have some credit so we can get the thing ahead of time. So here comes Krishna consciousness, the most valuable jewel, and we want it. But we really don't have the adhikar, we're not eligible for the valuable jewels that Krishna consciousness is all about. So in, a, in an intellectual way, we think we've gotten them. And we become insensitive even to 
human suffering. Whereas, if our hearts becoming softer, we should be sensitive to all the problems that people are suffering. And as I say, they may say, oh yeah, that is, we shouldn't lament for them, that's that is their karma. But when their brother dies, or their mother dies, or their wife dies, or their child gets run over by a car, the reality of their situation is revealed. They're lamenting, they're crying. So artificially they're saying they don't feel for such people. They haven't risen to the platform of identifying first with all people as part of the same family. So I think in times like this, when you see those kind of reactions, that people are hard-hearted towards the plight of others or, or world situation, that uh, that should be addressed. And you should gauge your own progress by the extent to which your heart is becoming soft. This is really the golden rule of yoga, that you should feel the sufferings of others as if they are your own. This brings yoga into the practical realm. It's so easy to take yoga and spiritual practice out of the realm of the practical and make it merely an intellectual affair and think that you've gone somewhere by that. But we should test our progress, and this is a practical way, how soft your heart is towards the plight of others. Another question? Who is a Sadguru? Who is a guru? Who is a Sadguru? Who is a Sadguru? I mean, what is a Sadguru? How do we know? How do we know? Who is a Sadguru? One thing to know, if we want to answer that question, there are many ways to answer, and then certain symptoms are given in Bhagavad Gita also. At the end of the second chapter, symptoms are given. And uh, in the 14th chapter also. You can study the scripture. You can find the qualifications there. That's one answer to your question. The other thing is that what might be useful is to understand what are the characteristics of a disciple. And you try to put yourself in that position. Because really only to the extent that you're in that position would be able to recognize someone who's qualified even if they're before you. They may be before you, you may not be able to recognize them because you're really not in the disposition of a student. So if you don't have a necessity, how do you recognize? First thing that a real guru will do is try to create or awaken, intensify a necessity within you. So try to put yourself understand what, a, what an ideal disciple would be, then you have to think, am I interested in that, even in being such? If you're not, then you'll have some problems even if you find a Sadhguru. So, one thing is that there's no shortage on Krishna's part in providing guidance. But there's a lack of interest. That's the problem. So we have to create interest. And as we create interest, then we have eyes to see and recognize. Otherwise, as I say, you can study end of the chapter of Bhagavad Gita, second chapter, there's a description of what is a realized person, what is, how he walks, how he talks, how does he sit, how does he react to others and so forth. And then how you know, then one thing, if you hear from a qualified person, then consistently you should find your life is changing. Your life is actually changing. Because this is about change. 
about you changing. So words that have power, spiritual backing, will have some effect, bring about some change. So if you find those things coming, and you're taking spiritual life more seriously, and you're starting to change, and you think, well, I must be in touch with this, with a live wire. Because theoretical knowledge won't have the same power as realized insight, mystic insight. Speaking from that platform, they will have more power. That will be more compelling. What else? Brahma? We're talking about the soul. And um, I was reading one question in Sangha, and it said that the soul is a unit of non-dual consciousness. Not just a unit of non-dual consciousness or something <laughs> like that, but the dedicating principle of that unit. So, I tried to conceive of this or understand this, and um, I don't really have it. The idea is that reality is non-dual consciousness. Advaigyan tattva. This is the foundational statement of Śrīmad-Bhāgavatam. In terms of tattva, the philosophy of the Bhāgavatam, this and Krishna's two Bhagavan Svayam, these are the statements that the whole Bhāgavatam is built on. What is the verse? Advai gyan tattva, brahmeti paramatmeti bhagavaniti sabdhita. Vadanti tat tattva vidas tattvam yad gyanam advayam. The whole tattva of Bhāgavatam is built on this one verse and the other pada line that Krishna is the Siswam Bhagavan. So, Advaigyan Tattva, it means reality is, is non-dual consciousness. Consciousness means knowledge also, non-dual knowledge. Learned persons say that the nature of reality is that it's non-dual consciousness. It expresses itself variously as Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagwan. So, this is a huge explanation required, but I'll try to make it as brief as possible. I think perhaps what the confusion is that it's an individual soul, but it's non-dual consciousness right, at the same in time. Some distant sense that God is both localized and non-dual. So when we talk about the soul as a unit of non-dual consciousness, Shakti, right? Then I, then I get short-circuited on that. Well, the idea is that, that when we say that the Absolute is non-dual consciousness, but it expresses itself variously as Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan, these are three phases of the life of the Absolute. In other words, reality exists, it's cognizant, and it's joyful. And because it's joyful, it has to be cognizant and has to exist. In other words, you could have existence that wasn't cognizant of itself or joyful, but you can't have a, a non-existing cognizance. So if reality is cognizant, it also has to exist. If reality is joyful, then in order to perceive that, it has to be cognizant and it has to exist. So we say, ultimately, anandamayo bhyasat, the absolute is a joy. In order to, to be joyful, it has to be, have cognizance and has to have existence. So these are three phases, or three faces of the Absolute. Brahman, existential, Paramatma, cognitive, and Bhagavan, joyful. 
So, although it's non-dual reality, it expresses itself variously, but that expression does not compromise its being non-dual. Bhagwan has shaktis, prasya shaktis, vividaiva shriyate, unlimited potencies, shaktis. The shaktis are non-different from the absolute. Just like I'm a person and I have energy, so my energy is me. If by my energy I write books, and you say, I know Swami, he writes books, I read his book. You're talking about my energy, but you're talking about me at the same time, because there's no difference between my energy and me. So Bhagavan has shakti by which so many things are accomplished, by which he plays out his joy, expresses his joy. It manifests as the world and as his internal lilas in so many ways. So the fact that God has shaktis doesn't create a, a duality because the shaktis are non-different from him. We are constituted of one of those shaktis. So we're a unit of non-dual consciousness in the form of one of his shaktis. And to look more closely at our nature, we are of a de dedicating nature. The nature of this particular shakti it has dedication at its heart. So it's dedicating itself wherever it goes. We dedicate ourselves in relation to matter. If we have the good fortune of coming in touch with spiritual insight, we can dedicate ourselves in, in relation to spirituality and the internal shakti of God. So we're a unit of non-dual consciousness that is of a dedicating nature. That means that bhakti is at the heart of the nature of the soul, the swarup of the soul. It's not inactive. Matter may be also one of the shaktis of the Lord. It is. Maybe it would be more clear if you phrase it a unit of the non-dual substance. In other words, otherwise well, I don't know how it was phrased in the song, but I'm sure it was because okay there. Otherwise, if you identify yourself as one with that. You are one with it. That's the point, you see. We are as much one with God as we are different. We tend to stress the difference for the sake of uh, preaching in a particular way, but the reality is we're as much one as different simultaneously. And when you start to stress the oneness, then a lot of devotees lose their balance. <laughs> but uh, you see, it's like, for example, we like to say, and people like to hear it, that you're an individual and you can have a personal relationship with God. People like that. But what they think when they hear that, even if they join and so forth, that should be analyzed. Because what it means <laughs> is that your present individuality, based on mind and senses, has absolutely nothing to do with you. You have to separate yourself from it entirely to have a personal relationship with Krishna. And then you're going to say, well, what's left then to have a personal relationship if everything that's my personality is gone? <laughs> well, what's left is nothing. In other words, you become, <laughs> you become empty. You have no, your personality is based on your desires. Right? I like this. I don't like that. That's you. That's him. That's her. She likes this. She doesn't like that. That's her. With all those desires gone. And then what? 
Jibera Swarup Hoy Krishna Nityadas. This is the Swarup. Mahaprabhu told, what is the Swarup of the Jeev? Everybody wants to know, what is their Swarup? Gurudev, tell me, what is my Swarup? Mahaprabhu has told everybody. Jivera Swarup Hoy Krishna Nityadas. Krishna Das. Krishna Nityadas. This is the Swarup. This is the basis of the Swarup. Service. So what does service mean? If I'm going to be someone's servant, I can't have any separate life. No separate life. No separate desire. Why Mahaprabhu use this term? Why didn't say Jiver Swarup Hoy Radha Munjari Dasi? <laughs> he didn't say that. No. Because there's only one kind of rasa, bhakti rasa. It has different flavors. But the basis of all of those expressions or flavors is seva, service. What does that mean? As I said, if you are a servant of Krishna, then you have no other life. Not servant, slave of Krishna. You have no other life. So all these desires that make up your life, finished, retired. Then what happens is Krishna fills you up with his desire, his will. You become filled with his will how he would like to express himself through you. That's Krishna Lila. All the souls in Krishna Lila, they're one with Krishna. One means what? They have no separate desire. That means they're only instruments of his desire. His Lila is his desire, his will. He's just playing it out. And those who want to cooperate with that, we are part of that, through them he does that. And they feel as if it's their own desire. That's the bade, the difference. It expresses itself as different. As there are many people, they all have different personalities. But it's Krishna. That's Krishna in his nature, his Swarup Shakti. The Swarup Shakti whole fully surrounds the Jeev Shakti. The fact that he's Tata, Tatasta, marginal, is obscured. No possibility to function in relation to his nature as Tatasta. To vacillate, that means. Because he's completely surrounded by the Surup Shakti, the internal energy of Krishna, through which Krishna expresses this is That's the nature of Krishna. So this is obeyed, <laughs> non-different. We are non-different. Just instrument of his will, fully one with his will. But it, it manifests as if obeyed, difference. So much variety and so many wonderful leelas, pastimes going on. But the foundation of it is what? Therefore, as I say, the tattva of Bhagavatam, advaigyan tattva, non-dual consciousness. Jiva Goswami says, achintya veda ved. This is inconceivable. Veda ved. And same time, equally. It's not sometimes ved, sometimes obed. Veda and obed. Same time. Same thing. Krishna and Krishna's devotee. Krishna and Brajbhakta, they're one. As I said, Krishna is the, is the heart of the devotee. That's what he is. He's one with the devotee. Without that heart of the devotee, there's no Krishna. Krishna is, the, is reciprocating in relation to the heart of the devotee. They're one. You can say the devotee is Krishna. You can say Krishna is the devotee. It gets, then it gets a little fuzzy. The Maharaj is a Mayavadi. <laughs> Watch out. Don't go there. <laughs> You see, that's why for simplicity's sake, we stress the bed, difference.
the difference between God and the living entity. The living entity is not God. But if we go deeply inside the philosophy, we find out it's, uh, it's more gray than it seemed. It's not so black and white. But that then another Shankar's Advaita Vedanta, that is not the not a accurate perception of the nature of of being. But Abed, Bed, both are there. So it's attractive, yes, you have a personal relationship with Krishna Mataji. <laughs> Just give up the Mataji. <laughs> Just forget about all that stuff. <laughs> and make yourself servant. Servant of the Vaishnav. And of course, again, we get this, this is a high thing. This is a high idea to be like that. We cannot be like that. We have desires. So Vaishnav's kindness is that he finds a way to, as we say, to dovetail those desires, hopefully. There should, should be some test at some point. Is it happening? Is it happening? We should test ourselves. We fail to think about why we got involved sometimes. Or what was our necessity at that time? That should be all, all the time. Necessity is, is everything. So how we will empty ourselves out of all desires? Yeah, you have to say to the Vaishnava Maharaj, what can I do? <laughs> can I have any seva? That's the beginning. Some seva. But it's important. We become acquainted with the depth of this, this the, the commitment that's involved. That's we should be up for a challenge. Anything else? Srimad Bhagavad Gita ki jai. Sri Bodhi Vaishnav Guru Parampara ki jai. Kaur Bhakta Vrinda ki jai. Kaur Premanandi. Hari Om.